This is Psalm 39. To the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man that is best is but vapor. Selah. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they, are busy, they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. With, when the, with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner as all my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. Now our uh, sermon text for today is going to come out of Genesis chapter 41. As I said, this is our 100th Genesis sermon. This, I'm going to read you the first 13 verses today. Genesis 41, starting at the first verse, it says, Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadows. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second time, and suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed, it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker. We each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with, the, uh, with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard. Then we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. More dreams. We've got more dreams. In Genesis, God is working through dreams in a variety of ways. He's looking to the future. And when he does, he uses them to show pictures of Christ, to show that he is in control of the things which happen in the world, both to his covenant people and to those who are outside of the covenant, and also to direct things to turn out as he planned. And then he also looks to the past with these dreams. The dreams are recorded to give us patterns and pictures of Christ who has come, to substantiate, substantiate how things will come about, and also to verify how things work within the Bible itself. 
The various dreams which are recorded in Genesis follow a theme and a pattern which is very consistent. And so, when they're placed among the almost unlimited number of other patterns, they provide another level of validation that this is, in fact, a book which was written with superior wisdom, with care, and directed attention. In the approximately 2,500 years of time which the book of Genesis records, only six people's dreams are relayed to us. Started out with Abimelech, the king of Gerar, during Isaac's time. And then Jacob, he had uh, a dream of a ladder reaching to heaven. And after that, Joseph had his two dreams. One was of the sheaves and one was of the stars. And then came the cupbearer and the baker. Both of them had a, uh, individual dreams in prison. And then finally today we have Pharaoh's two dreams. Only six people in 2,500 years of history have dreams that are particularly uh, needed for God's plan of redemption. Now, I counted those up and I thought, you know, I wonder how many other people in the Bible had God-directed dreams, which are specifically noted as dreams. And guess what? In all, only 12 people qualify. In 4,000 years of recorded redemptive history in the pages of the Bible, only 12 people's dreams are recorded. God reserves for himself the truly prophetic dream, and that dream's interpretation, and he does so very sparingly. Now, there are other things. There are visions, and there are prophecies, and other things in the Bible. I'm talking about specifically dreams, as noted as dreams. And uh, this is the way that God speaks to us through the pages of the Bible in these various ways, but only 12 dreams. And because of this, it would be good for us to remember the words from Jeremiah chapter 23. He says this, Behold, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, and tell them, and cause my people to err by their lies and by their recklessness. Yet I did not send them or command them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, says the Lord. Seeing the rare and the select nature of God-directed dreams in the Bible, it is better that we simply enjoy our dreams without putting too much credence in them, lest we get led astray. Our text verse for today comes from Daniel chapter 2. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. It's true. God gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. The Bible also says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we need to get those things into order. Learn to fear our God and then to seek the true wisdom, which can only come from knowing him and from pursuing him. And the right way to do that is through reading and through seeking him in his superior word. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Now, I got three thoughts for you today. The first is two dreams. This is verse number one. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years. Now, at the end of the last chapter, chapter 40, we read about Joseph's continued plight in the pit. He told the dreams, they were fulfilled, the guys got out, and he's still sitting in the pit. And that's how the chapter ended. I want to read that to you so you have a reference of where we're at. said, now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all of his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and the chief baker among the servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. The chief butler may have forgotten Joseph, but God never did. He will use events in Joseph's time in the prison to bring him to a place of high honor. And we're, so we're told that this comes about at the end of two full years. In Hebrew, this 
the term that they use is shnitayim yamim. It means literally two years of days. It was no shorter than two years. It's not sure, though, if this is from the time of his incarceration or if it was from the time of the dreams with the butler and the baker. Doesn't really matter, though, because whichever, it was a long time for Joseph to sit in that pit and to think about what was going on around him. But it was also a time of development, and it was a time of preparation, which God deemed necessary for him. He was a young man when he went into uh, slavery. He was developed through his time at Potiphar's house. He went into the pit, and the Lord developed him in there. He became the overseer of the pit itself. Now, I want to tell you that when I was ordained, I didn't know the Lord until 2001, and uh, I was at a business right down the road here at Gulfgate, and I sat in the back of that business because it's obviously slow in the summertime around here, and I read the Bible 10 hours a day, every day, day after day. I'd read the Bible once in a week, and I'd start again with Genesis, and I'd read it again. And I did that for two full years, reading the Bible once a week for uh, 10 hours a day. And I thought, man, I just want to get out, and I want to tell everybody about Jesus, and I did. Everybody I met, I told them about Jesus, and I wanted to uh, uh, be a, a missionary. Well, that didn't work out. Something uh, fell through with that. And um, then I uh, decided that, you know, I want to be ordained. And I'm in one church. I moved to another church, and uh, I was in that church for a while, and I knew I wanted to be ordained. And something happened in that church which caused me a great deal of heartache. And I didn't want to leave the church, but I didn't want to go to church one morning. And so I ended up walking around and I heard some singing. And I had no idea that a Korean church met in our same building. And so I went and I sat there and I watched them for a while. And uh, uh, I loved it. I, I, I loved seeing the Lord worshipped in another language. And so I went back the next week. And uh, the third week, there was a uh, potluck back at the regular church. And I thought, I'm not going to miss that. So I went to the potluck. And uh, one of the Koreans, they were all invited. One of them came up to me and said, well, um, you know, why weren't you in church today? And I thought, oh, well, they must want me there. So I went back and I never left. I stayed for a couple years. I taught myself Korean. And uh, I can still, to this day, sing the Psalms in Korean, although I've lost almost all the Korean I learned. But... Uh, uh, I, I wanted to be ordained, and I, I, I didn't know how to do it. So finally, I went up to the pastor of this church, and I said, you know, Pastor Yi, how do I get ordained? Well, I want you to go to college. And I thought, man, I, I know the Bible. I've read it, a, you know, many times, but that's what he wanted. So I immediately went out, and I, I got my college out of the way. I mean, I just, I burned through it as quickly as I could, and I went up, and I said, I want to be ordained. And he says, well, we got some uh, people coming, uh, some deacons from another church, and they'll evaluate you this week, and we'll let you know. And, of course, I have a beard, and I, at the time, wore shoes. And when I wear shoes, I always wear a green sock and a red sock. And that's not – it just helps me if I'm turning right, I know which way to turn. And if I'm turning left, I know which way to turn. That's just a habit of mine. I always wear two different colored socks. They didn't like that. They didn't like that I had a beard. They didn't like that I had two colored socks. And they said, we're not going to ordain this guy. And so I thought, well, I, that's what I want to do. So I called up another church where my brother attended. And I talked to the pastor, and he said, Psh, Come on over here. We'll evaluate you for a year. Forget your socks. Just come on over. And uh, uh, I was there for a year, and uh, the, the congregation got to know me. And then the, uh, the uh, deacons got together one day and with the pastor, and they had a meeting, and they, they uh, went ahead and agreed to ordain me. And after that, I still didn't know what to do. You know, I'm attending a church. They have a pastor. The place is full all over Sarasota. Everybody's got a pastor. If you want a tough time, get a pastor job in Sarasota because it's a great place. And so it's easy to find very qualified people. I have no pastoral experience. So what do I do? I get in my car and I drive to all 50 states in America and I preach at every capital in the nation because I want people to know about Jesus. I want the nation to return back to God. I just, you know, I, 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 it was something for me to do. And after that, I came back 
I still don't know what to do. And so I said, well, you know, I'm going to start preaching out at the uh, beach on Sunday afternoon. I just got to tell people about Jesus. I got to explain this word to them. And uh, that went on. And finally, I realized I need to move to the morning time. The afternoon is great. Lots of people showed up. We had musicians and bands and it was just wonderful. And uh, uh, I I had to decide, what am I going to do? It'll never be a church. It'll just be a a novelty. And so I said, we're going to move to the morning. And I don't want a single person that attends here that goes to another church to come next week. I want you to go to your own church. I'm not here to rob other churches. And so we went from 35, 40 people, I don't know, down to three. There were three of us. Kelly was there that first week. And uh, she, she won't go away. She keeps coming to these sermons. But it, it, was, it was very scary. And, you know, in the beach, it rains. And you get red tide. You get every possible thing. I posted on Facebook this morning, it's going to rain today, and I don't care. We are in a building now. But the Lord was developing me through those things. And I'm not trying to, to boast to you about myself. I'm trying to show you that his time in the pit was a time of development. And my time was literally a pit for me. Because all that I want to do, and Paul will tell you this, he knows me. All I want to do is tell people about the Bible. That is all that I want. I want people to know the Bible in its fullness. I love to tell people about Jesus, but once they know Jesus, if they go to a church that doesn't open the Bible, what good has that done for them? It got them into heaven, and they're not developed when they get there. They got an eternity to develop. Might as well get it done now and see the Lord in his fullness when you stand in his presence and say, I understand why I'm here. So, You understand Joseph's plight. He's in the prison, and he's being developed. And that's the point I'm trying to make there. Verse 1 continues. The Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Once again, dreams come into this unfolding drama of history, and in particular, into Joseph's life. He had two dreams, I said. They were the sheaves and the stars. And those dreams contrasted, and yet they confirmed the message of authority and rule of him over his brothers and ultimately of Christ. There were the dreams then of the butler and the baker. Again, those dreams contrasted, and yet they confirmed. The contrast showed the state of the saved and of the lost, but they confirmed once again the authority of Christ over both dead and living. He is Lord of all. And now for the third time, dreams will have a bearing on Joseph's life. If this pattern follows that we've been looking at, there will be two dreams which will also contrast each other, and yet they will confirm something. Now, I've said it before, and I will surely say this again. The Bible is written. It has the word amen at the end of it, and I believe that dreams should no longer be considered as divine revelation for us. In the New Testament, the only reference to dreams having any future significance at all is in Acts chapter 2, where Peter, who is the apostle to the Jewish people, was speaking to the people of Israel concerning the people of Israel. Matthew Henry wisely notes this concerning dreams. He says this, The means of Joseph's being freed from prison were Pharaoh's dreams, as here related. Now that God no longer speaks to us in that way, and his conclusion is the same as mine, we have the Bible, it no matter, it no matter how little either we heed dreams or tell them. The telling of foolish dreams can make no better than foolish talk. But these dreams showed that they were sent of God. When he awoke, awoke, Pharaoh's spirit was troubled. He notes that the dreams were sent of God. Now, one thing is for sure. If God gives a dream to somebody to show something, he will give the interpretation of that dream. 
it would make no sense for God to give a dream which needs to be interpreted and then not provide an interpreter. So if you can see the fine line of what's presented here, if we start looking at dreams as a relevant source of our doctrine and our practice, then we, or whoever gives that interpretation, becomes the arbiter of what practice we should follow. Now, is that a comfortable consideration for you when we have the Bible already written for that very purpose? And I'll give you a perfect example of this. And this isn't just made up. This actually happened two weeks ago. Somebody emailed me and they said they had a dream. They want me to interpret it. And it was kind of specific. And there were certain things that this person saw. And you know what? I thought to myself, I could say, well, yeah, that tornado there, that, that's you vacuuming the superior word. And that wave that you saw, well, that's you cleaning the bathrooms in the superior word, right? And the, the, the whatever, the bird that flew over your head, that is you donating money to the superior word. Do you see? Anybody can say anything. And if we take somebody's word, even if they're a specialist at something, from a dream of the night, we have placed our, our souls in their hand, literally. That's why we have the Bible. Even this dream right here of Pharaoh is less concerned with him than it is for the deliverance of Joseph and ultimately his family, who are God's people. Once again, this is the aim and the purpose of Scripture. And because it is, we have to be extremely careful about pondering our dreams as some type of prophetic gift. Anyway, it says in his dream, Pharaoh stood by a river. The word River is the word yeor. Some of you will have Nile translated in your Bible there. It doesn't say Nile. It just simply says river. Yeor means either a canal or a river. But it is almost exclusively used when referring to the Nile. So if you have Nile in there, don't feel like your translator mis misled you. They didn't. It's almost exclusively in Scripture speaking of the Nile. And that's certainly the case here. Verse 2. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Now, while Pharaoh is standing there by the river, we're told that suddenly seven cows come up out of the river. And if you read enough commentaries, there's always something funny that comes up. This one had a, a funny commentator make a very funny comment. He said that these must have been hippopotamuses because they came out of the river. Now, this is completely contrary to what the rest of the chapter says, and it makes no sense in the context of what the dream means. Sometimes people try too hard to come to conclusions to... Uh, come to a result from that particular concept. In other words, here's the river, and these must be hippopotamuses because they're coming out of there. They weren't hippopotamuses. They were cows. The heifer cow is regarded by the ancient Egyptians as a symbol of the earth, of agriculture, and of the nourishment which is derived from those things. And this is why the cow is the hieroglyphic symbol of those things, and that the Egyptian goddess, who was called Isis, she was adorned with the sacred cow because of the symbolism that it contained. And this is what's being pictured here, as we're going to see in all of the coming sermons about this particular passage. The fact that they are rising out of the Nile shows the cause of their fatness. It's derived from the Nile, the water being their source of life and growth. Now, after arising from the Nile, Pharaoh sees them feeding on the marsh grass, which is abundant along the edges of the Nile River. Verse 3, Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. Suddenly Pharaoh interjects, Vehine, and behold, after the seven cows, fine and fat, came seven more, gross and gaunt, 
And we can be certain that, as the first did please, the last did haunt. The next seven came out of the river as well. But when they came up, it says they stood by the cows on the bank of the Nile. Instead of eating in the marsh, the Hebrew uses the term shafat, which means the lip of the river. What was an overflow for the first seven cows resulting in land for grazing has turned into a very thin edge of the river, which indicates no overflow at all. The Bible says that they are evil looking and they're gaunt. They're miserable bags of bones and their skin is hanging loosely off of them. The word gaunt here comes from a Hebrew word which means to be beaten fine. These cows have been reduced to their very lowest state. So hungry are they that they will do something unexpected before Pharaoh's eyes. Verse 4, and the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. In what is contrary to nature on several levels, the skinny ones eat the fat ones. It's contrary that a skinny animal would be able to eat another fat one of the same kind. It's contrary that the weaker should overcome the stronger. And it's also contrary that a herbivore would eat another of its own kind as if it were a carnivore. Nothing in the dream seems to fit with reason, and so for the dream there must be a reason. And because of the disturbing nature of the dream, the result is the continuation of verse 4. So Pharaoh awoke. It was a dream to cause the king to wake, one which disturbed him from his slumber deep. You would think then, for goodness sake, that he would never be able to get back to sleep. But you would be wrong. And so, let's move along. Verse 5. He slept and dreamed a second time. As surely as Joseph had two dreams, and as was seen in the two dreams revealed by uh, Joseph in prison, Pharaoh now has a second dream as well. This one then, following the biblical pattern of the number two, will contrast the first, and yet it will confirm the message. Verse 5 continues, And suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. In this dream, rather than fauna, there is the contrast of flora. In this case, it is grain used for food, which would be a particular type of grain. It's known as tritium compositum. It's a type of wheat that actually does bear seven uh, heads on one stalk. And in order to support the weight and provide enough nourishment for the grain, it would have a solid stem, one that's full of pith. And this is what Pharaoh sees. But more than just the type, he notes the health of it. It's very plump and good. Verse 6, then behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. Suddenly Pharaoh interjects again, Vehine, and behold, a new part of the dream captures his attention. Seven thin heads he did see by the east wind blighted, sprang up after them. It made him feel uptighted. There is the Nile, the source of water, which ran, ran dry in the first dream. And there is the contrasting wind, which turns from favorable to hostile in the second. These dreams contrast, but they will also be seen to confirm. Now, as a side note, and I want you to know this, this verse right here that we're looking at has been used as the subject of derision by people who will attempt to diminish the truth of the Bible. And the reason is that the east wind is not a normal occurrence in the land of Egypt. And even if there is one, it apparently won't have the same effects that are noted here. In case you ever read this, because these are in commentaries out there, there are a couple of things that you need to note. The first is, this is a supernatural occurrence which has come in the form of a dream. God is showing the effect of what will happen and noting the cause of that effect. If the dream is given by God, then the effect will come about because it's 
given by God. If the effect will come about, then the cause, even if not normal, will come from God. And because of this, the symbolism of the word east can be interpreted from the symbolism of what the uh, word east signifies in the Bible. There is an abundant, and I mean there are abundant number of verses in the Bible which tell of the destructive, the directed, and the divine nature of that which comes from the east. In Exodus, in Job, in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in uh, Hosea, in Jonah, and even in the little book known as Habakkuk, the east wind is noted in one of several ways. It's noted for the mischief that it wreaks upon the lands of the Middle East. And it is also used symbolically in a divine manner. I want to read you a great example of this from Hosea chapter 13. This is speaking of the people of Ephraim. Though he, Ephraim, is fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. Speaking of the east wind. Now listen to how he describes this east wind. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness. Then his spring shall become dry and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall plunder the treasury of every desirable prize. Samaria is held guilty for she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces and their women with child ripped open. Disobedience leads to this divine east wind coming into the land. Secondly, the Bible uses only four general directions, east, west, north, and south. The wind that is named here in Hebrew is known as Kadim. It can be comprised of any wind which goes from a northeast direction all the way down to a southeast direction. And so, based on that, Thirdly, the southeast wind, which usually comes to the land of Egypt in March and April, is one of the longest duration and one of the greatest harm in the land. One writer, a guy named Ukert, is quoted as saying this, As long as the southeast wind continues, doors and windows are closed, but the fine dust penetrates everywhere. Everything dries up. Wooden vessels warp and crack. The thermometer rises suddenly, and it says it goes from 16 to 38 on his scale. It doubles immediately. This wind works destruction upon everything. The grass withers so that it entirely perishes if the wind blows long, which is exactly what we see in Pharaoh's dreams. The reason for all of this detail is to once again assure you that the Bible is both sound and it is reliable. If you read enough commentaries, you're normally going to come across people that want to introduce doubt into your faith. And the idea is that if the Bible can't get something as simple as an east wind right, then how much less will it get matters of your life right? This is their attempt. And this is why it's important to be ready to defend against that attempt. God's word is strong enough to overcome these things. And at the same time, it will make the people who try to do so look foolish in the process. And I'm going to give you a real quick example of somebody that uh, uh, has made many scholars of the past look rather dumb. Is because the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles record certain things. It'll say the king did something in the first year of his reign. And the same king, talking about the same thing, later will say it might say he did it in the second year of his reign. And you say, well, see, there's a contradiction here. And this goes all the way through Kings and Chronicles. This child was born at this time, and yet in relation to the king, he's born at this time. Yeah, there's just dozens and dozens of them. And you're thinking, well, this is a book of errors. And yet this guy, Edwin R. Teeley is his name. He did his doctoral dissertation on this, and he wrote a book called The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings. And what he did is he came up with the 
way that these were actually put into the Bible. You have kings written by one group of people or one author, and you have chronicles written by another. And they're looking at these things from a different perspective. And I'm going to give you an example so you understand this. In America, we have the uh, fiscal year. begins when? October. October. Whoever said October got that right. And then we have the calendar year, which is January. And we have all these different years that we are basing different things on. So one guy is writing from, we'll say, a fiscal year, and one is writing from a calendar year. Well, it's called the Regnat year, the year of the king. And then, of course, you have two different calendar years in the Bible. You've got the one that's based on the Exodus, which is in the month of Nisan, and you've got the one that's based on creation, which is the month of Tishri. And so all of these dates have to be taken into consideration. And so he spent a volume of his life putting everything in the order of what the writer was writing about. And when you look at it, it's all charted out, and it comes out so perfectly that I actually broke into tears the first time I saw it. I could not believe the amount of precision of God's word, which people have been laughing at and trying to diminish for eons. Oh, look at the faults in the Bible, without ever considering that maybe a different writer is writing for a different reason. This is the power of God's word, and it is the authority of God himself that's on trial. If God wrote this word, then it is perfect. And I assure you that this word is perfect because God wrote this word. Verse 7, And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. Again, just like the previous dream, that which is contrary to sound reason occurs. Stocks of grain don't normally go around eating other stocks of grain. And even if they did, which they don't, skinny ones could not eat fat ones. It wouldn't make sense to a mind that's in sleep. Instead, that mind would be jolted awake, and that's exactly what we see. Verse 7 continues, So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. And so he is awakened again. Vehine, and behold, what didn't make sense is seen to only have been a dream. It was a dream that was so real that it was taken as reality until he woke up. Our second thought today, frustrating the wisdom of the wise. Verse 8, Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit troubled, was troubled, and he sent and called for all of the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. In the morning, the term here is baboker. The word for morning in Hebrew is boker. The reason why I say this is because it reminds me of somebody that I love. And I love the term because I love this person. My mom and I went to Israel and we met a guy named Zvi Ravai. He died of brain cancer a couple of years ago, but uh, he was an exceptional human being. He was a believer in Jesus Christ there in Israel, which is tough enough already. But uh, the word in Hebrew is boker for morning. And when you greet somebody in Hebrew, you don't say good morning, you say morning good. And so uh, it would be in Hebrew, boker tov. And Zvi, this beautiful human being in his wonderful way of using repetition for learning would come out and he would say to every one of us, you know, several times each day, Boker Tov, morning good. And so you, you, after two weeks of this and hearing it at least three or four times a day, maybe 40 times while you're there, you would never again in your life forget how to say morning good in Hebrew. And so that's my little remembrance of Zvi Ravai. What a nice person. It was in the morning that Pharaoh was disturbed to the point of calling in his counselors. This takes us right back to the dreams of the butler and the baker in the dungeon with Joseph. At that time, I said that they were upset because they didn't have anybody to explain their dreams to them. If they were out of the prison, they could have just gone to these people and said, hey, I had a dream. Will you interpret it for me? Unlike them, though, Pharaoh thought that he would find an explanation for the dreams, and all he needs to do is go to these professional counselors. And so we go to eight, verse 8, continuing, and Pharaoh told them his dreams. 
but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Pharaoh's dreams were perplexing indeed, but surely someone could interpret them, right? If God gave the dream, then he must have also decreed to give interpretation for the vision of the night. But the professionals of Egypt, the greatest country on earth at that time, could not help. These were people skilled in all of the arts and sciences, and yet they couldn't interpret what Pharaoh dreamt. And the Bible explains why in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says these words, For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. The dream was from God, and so only the spirit of God could properly interpret the dream. And this is going to be seen again in the book of Daniel. When God has a plan for his people, his word, and for his redemptive purposes, he will intervene in the affairs of men to ensure that these will be tended to according to his will. What seems almost as a testament against the world, though, as much as it is one for the world, we see something that is a little bit more than ironic here. God changes the course of nations and the destiny of many, many people by a single dream in a night or two dreams in a single night to a pagan king. Imagine that. And yet, today we have his entire word given to the entire world, and that word is being more and more neglected and abandoned. It seems to be the more that this word is published and the more that it's made available via internet and radio and TV, the fewer people attend to it in proportion to the amount that it's distributed. Now, this doesn't mean that all is lost. It's not. But the Bible's intended effect is at one time to illuminate God more perfectly to his people, while at the same time to increasingly harden those who reject him. One pharaoh is going to hear and he's going to take to heart this word. Another, at the end of their time in Egypt, will later harden his heart to the word of God. They're like bookends on the Egyptian years. There's an east wind which causes the move of Israel to Egypt, thus saving them. And there is an east wind which allows the move of Israel away from Egypt when the Red Sea is parted, again saving them. There is the Pharaoh who softens his heart to the dreams God gave him, and he promotes a Hebrew to the highest office in the land. And there is the Pharaoh who hardens his heart to the word of God and subjects the Hebrews to the most degrading conditions possible. There is the welcoming of Israel into Pharaoh's presence, and there is the casting away of Israel from Pharaoh's presence. There is the voluntary blessing of Pharaoh by Israel. Jacob walks up and he blesses Pharaoh when the two first meet, and there is the anxious request for a blessing from Israel before Pharaoh and the Israelites are parted at the Exodus. And there is the consolidation of power in Egypt because of Joseph, and there is the loss of all of its might because of Moses. On and on, the patterns come into focus in this marvelous story of how God deals with the nations, symbolized here by Egypt and because of his beloved people, Israel. These patterns are way too many to be dismissed. It could not be just the vain imaginations of a man who would say, I'm going to put this pattern in showing this and then this and then this because they go through the whole Bible. And you've seen so many of the other patterns 
that I've brought forward for you, numerical patterns and structural patterns and things that go over books of the Bible and even through the whole Bible. And they're showing us that there is a wisdom from God that is so deep and it's so wonderful. And what is that wisdom there to tell us? I am God. This is my direction for you because I love you and I want you to be restored to me. That's what the whole message of the Bible comes down to. And he's doing it in such a marvelous way that when we read this, we should say, he really cares about little old me. This wisdom, it's beyond my understanding. I mean, I read it day after day after day and I find something in there or somebody shows me something and I think, how could I have missed that? But God, you are so great and you love me enough to show me this now. Thank you. Our third thought today, the Hebrew man, verse 9 Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day. Only after he saw that the magicians and the wise men couldn't help resolve the matter does the butler speak up. He obviously felt that this would put him in a better light with Pharaoh, and so he begins a statement with, I remember my faults this day. From the Hebrew, just like in the English, we do not know what fault he's speaking about. Is he speaking about about his faults before Pharaoh, which ended up him up in jail, Or is he speaking about the fault of not mentioning Joseph since he got out of jail? We can't be certain. But one way or another, he's confessing that he has erred in his actions. Verse 10, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, we each had a dream in one night, he and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. The cupbearer goes into great detail about the situation because of its remarkable resemblance to what's happened to Pharaoh. There were two dreams then, and there are two dreams now. But to ensure that what he says has its intended effect, he notes that the dreams were by different people. Now, I thought about this, and I got to tell you, this was God all over it. He chose two people to have the dream in prison instead of one, because one of the guys could have had the dream for both of them. Instead, he had both of them have an individual dream in prison. Rather than confirming the dreams of one, What he will say will be more weighty because it confirmed the dreams of two. Here is the importance. He's standing in the presence of Pharaoh. He's using tact so that he doesn't lose Pharaoh's favor again if things don't work out. The interpretation of that one person's dream, even if it came true, could be considered less important. But when two people are involved, both are high officials of Pharaoh, he'd have to consider it with that greater weight. The biblical axiom then, though by the mouth of two or three witnesses is a matter established, bears true even in this situation. If he stepped forward with his own dream, which was fulfilled, but then Joseph failed, it could possibly land him in prison again. But if he says two people had two dreams and they were both fulfilled, then Pharaoh would have to consider that and he'd be less likely to be upset even if Joseph were to fail. Two or more testimonies is always better than one. And that's why the Bible says that you're not to bring in accusation against certain people unless you have two witnesses. Uh, If you're going to condemn somebody for murder, there must be at least two witnesses. Why? Because telling a lie is a lot easier than murdering a person. And the weight of the sin obviously bears eternally on one of them where the other it doesn't. So if I don't like somebody and I know that my testimony is going to stand, oh, he did this and they stoned him, I got my problem resolved. And God says, don't do that. Always have at least two witnesses for a capital crime. Same thing with an elder or a deacon in a church. You're not to accept that accusation unless there are two people. When you're in school, a foolish teacher will take the advice of one student. Oh, Tommy said this because Tommy and Jim are always fighting anyway. 
So why would you take one person's advice? At least two witnesses and do this in your life, do this in your work. Be responsible in that regard because that's a pattern that God has set down for us. Anyway, he goes and he gives us these details. Verse 12. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. The cupbearer takes it on the assumption, and I don't know if you caught this reading this verse, but he takes it on the assumption that Pharaoh would know what a Hebrew is. The reason probably goes all the way back to the time of Abraham. It's been 200 years since Abraham went down to Egypt, but he originally came from Babylon, and he would have brought all of the wisdom of Babylon with him when he went to Canaan, and then he went down to Egypt after that. The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus says this about Abraham. He says, he communicated to them arithmetic, saying Abraham brought arithmetic down to Egypt, and he delivered to them the science of astronomy. For before Abraham came into Egypt, they were unacquainted with those parts of learning. For that science came from the Chaldeans into Egypt, and from thence to the Greeks also. (laughs) If Abraham was remembered in the same light, for example, of uh, we think of Benjamin Franklin as one of our great innovators of science and uh, industry in this country, if he was remembered in that same light, then his people, who are the Hebrew people, would be considered in the same light as Abraham was. So to introduce Joseph as a Hebrew would then add more credibility to his ability to discern these type of matters, even the matters of a dream of Pharaoh. Verse 13, our last verse of the day. And it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office and he hanged him. To validate his statement, he gives the gist of what happened here. Just like this young man interpreted, so it came to pass. He was trustworthy then, and so I'm bringing him up to you now. Maybe he can do the same thing for you again. And to conclude what happened, he gives a summary of the results, and he gives a very brief summary. It's amazing. In fact, we could call his words in Hebrew short and concise. He doesn't mince any words. He says this, Oti heshiv restored in my office, hanged. That's all he says. He's very brief about what he says about what happened because he doesn't want to upset Pharaoh again. So he says, restored in my office, hanged. Although he didn't have the book of Ecclesiastes in front of him, he lived out a portion of that book very well. From Ecclesiastes 5, it says this, for a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. Sometimes the less said, the better. And it's almost always the case. And that's especially when you're around a boss or someone that's higher up in the chain of command. Most of us love to hear ourselves speak, but it is the wise person who speaks a little and listens a lot. And that's why the old axiom, God gave us one mouth and two ears. It's so that we'll listen and not speak all the time. And uh, James tells us about that in the book that he wrote towards the end of the Bible. James is the 59th book of the Bible. He says these words, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Sometimes saying less is the better choice. Speaking too much can make us look worse than a fool. And so let us withhold the sound of our voice until it's needed for others as a helpful tool. The cupbearer found himself in prison once, and he doesn't want to go back there again. He is swift to hear, He waited for the magicians and the wise men to give their words, and then he was slow to speak. But when it was time to speak, he did, in fact, speak. Now, this guy's name isn't recorded in the Bible. I don't know if you noticed that. We have all these people, like Potiphar. He's given his name. This guy's name is never recorded 
And yet his few words to Pharaoh saved his country, saved the people of Israel, and brought about a chain of events which would eventually lead to Israel's exodus, a return to the land, and even in ushering in the Messiah of the entire world. Now that's not bad for a person who was once sitting in a dungeon wondering if he would ever come out of that dungeon, and if so, if he would be executed when he came out. This is where things end today. It's in anticipation of Joseph's being brought from uh, out of the prison and into the pr presence of Pharaoh. But let's remember, if God can use an unnamed cupbearer to Pharaoh as a part of his plan to save the entire world of fallen man, then do you suppose that maybe he can do the same thing for you as well? What you're doing in your job may not seem very glamorous. And I know a couple people here that work physically. I don't know all of your jobs, but I know a couple people that do dirty jobs. I know one of them because he came over to my house a couple days ago and he washed his hands after working all day. So I know he works in a dirty job. Same thing I do every single morning. And I did for 20 years working in waste water, taking bad water and making it into good. But I tell you what, despite working in a, a job that doesn't seem important, every action that you take is playing a part in God's world, everything. You're not an afterthought, and what you might seem as insignificant could be a step towards an immensely important part of God's plan. Now, I'll give you an example so that you know exactly what I'm talking about, because I think of this person from time to time. I have no idea who they are, but somebody took the time to tell a man named Billy Graham about Jesus Christ. I don't know who he was. I don't know if it was his mom or somebody that he went into a restaurant and sat down for a cup of coffee and somebody said, can I tell you about Jesus? I have no idea who it was. Whoever it was, they were a part of bringing the gospel to more ears of humanity in one lifetime than any person in human history. Imagine that. One person says, I'm going to tell this guy about Jesus. And he has had an effect on millions and millions and millions of people around the world. And you can do the exact same thing. And you may. I mean, we don't know what God is using us for. So when you think your job is menial, don't worry about it. Just keep telling people about Jesus and just keep being firm and bold in your convictions and in your right moral living. And now, maybe someday you're going to do that, and maybe you're not. But I would give you three things that I would ask you to take home with you today. All right? The first is to be confident in your doctrine. And there's only one way that you can do that, and that's through this book. Doctrine does not come out of the wind. Doctrine does not come from listening to Charlie Garrett. Doctrine comes from here. And if Charlie Garrett has handled this properly, then the two will match up. And if it doesn't, then you need to get your doctrine somewhere else. But be confident in your doctrine. All right? The second thing is to be bold in your proclamation. Because as I said, somebody took the time to tell Billy Graham about Jesus Christ. And somebody has to hear it. You know, you can, you can withhold that message from the people you work with then all you're doing is you're consigning them to an eternity apart from the glorious presence of God. You may be the one that leads somebody to Jesus, so be bold in your proclamation. And finally, be steadfast in your determination to be somebody that makes a difference. Charlie Garrett's treating wastewater, and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. I'm laying brick, and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. Or I'm going to work on somebody's car today, and I'm going to make sure that they don't have an accident when they leave my garage. Or I'm writing an insurance policy for somebody. And I want to make sure that it's going to take care of their needs. Whatever it is, if you're a carpenter, it doesn't matter what you do. You can do it to the glory of God and he can be glorified through what you do. 
And when you get feeling low in your job, which we all do, I tell you what, you can go back and you can think of this guy today, the cupbearer, who's sitting in prison. Remember that he was low. He was as low as he could have been, but that guy was restored. And then he was used. And God's word remembers him to this day, even though he's not named. This is great stuff from a glorious God. Now, if you've never taken the time to understand the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, if you've never had a personal relationship with him, and you don't understand his work and how it bears on you personally, or maybe you're curious about what God is doing in the world through Jesus Christ, I'd like just two more minutes to explain to you the simple gospel and why it's so important for you. The Bible says that we have sinned. Everybody here can say, yes, I've told a lie or I've done something that wasn't right. That's called sin. Sin simply means missing the mark. God is the mark. We've missed the mark. And when we sin, there is a separation between us and God now. And we can never go back in time before the sin and undo it. It's something that sticks with us. It's like having a black mark on us that won't go away. And God can no longer favor us because of that sin. And Jesus says in John three eighteen that those who believe in the Son uh, have eternal life, but those who don't believe are condemned already. That sin has already condemned us. We're separated from him. But Jesus Christ came and he shed his blood. He was perfect. He was without sin. And by doing that, he made a substitution for us. We can call on him and have his righteousness and our sin is transferred to his cross. We talked about that in the prophecy update today, having nailed that to the cross. The law which stood against us is now gone and we have restored relationship with God. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. We're going to die because of that. But the gift of God, it's a gift. All you have to do is reach out your hand and receive it. You don't have to give anybody anything for it. You don't have to do anything for it. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I would ask you today that if you've never asked Jesus to simply forgive you of your sins and call on Jesus, do it today. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. It's done. It's done. It can never be taken away. God does not make mistakes like we do. He's not the father that gets angry at us and says, I'm going to take you out of my will. He's the perfect father. Some of us didn't have the perfect father. And we keep looking at God like he is our father that we, who failed us a million times. God doesn't fail us. He's perfect in all of his ways. And when he adopts you, you are his child forever. So call on him. Be reconciled to God. I have a wonderful closing verse for you today from Matthew chapter 11. Listen to this. I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Think of Joseph sitting there in the, Joseph, he's sitting there in the prison. He was a young man taken down to Egypt, not skilled in all the sciences of Egypt. And God used him. He revealed it to the mouth of babes. Unbelievable. Next week is Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. It's called the zeal of the Lord of hosts. And that's our Christmas sermon. I just, I, I just love Isaiah's words to us. They're so beautiful. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and he has a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. All right. Our poem today is called Pharaoh's Dreams. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, a vision of the night. And behold, he stood by the river. It appears that the dream came to the focus of his sight. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow on the land which was green and flat. 
Then behold, seven other cows, not looking so good, came up after them out of the Nile. Ugly and gaunt by the other cows they stood there at the banks of the river for a while. And the ugly and gaunt cows, up they ate, the seven cows, fine-looking and fat. So Pharaoh awoke with an increased heart rate. It's lucky he didn't just fall flat. He slept and dreamed a second time, and suddenly up came seven heads of grain. On one stock, plump and good, so sublime, his dreams were coming once again. Then behold, seven emaciated heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them, looking ever so thinned. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump heads, plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, not feeling empowered, and indeed it was a dream woven with confusing threads. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled within him so, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men, surely the interpretation they would know. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them for Pharaoh. No, not even one. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants, and you put me in custody. Yes, you locked me away. In the house of the captain of the guard we were, both me and the chief baker too. We each had a dream in one night, for sure. He and I both had a dream which came true. Each of us dreamed according to that which was the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard of your regime. And we told him what each was each dream, and he interpreted both of them for us. To each man he interpreted according to its theme, and he did this quickly, easily, and without a fuss. And it came to pass, as I relate to you now, just as he interpreted for us, so it came about. He restored me to my office, but the other he did disavow, and he hanged him. The interpretation was true, no doubt. It is God who in various ways and in times past revealed his word for us until at long last. The word was finished and so it is complete. It gives us full instruction for guidance in our lives. It will lead us in each trial and challenge that we meet, be they with our husbands, our children, or wives, or in any other aspect when trouble comes around, in our finances or health, there is peace in this book to be found. Got to thank God for his superior word. It is filled with exceeding treasure, wonder, and delight. It is the book which reveals to us Jesus, our Lord, so we should keep our nose in it each day and each night. Maybe start with the psalm each morning bright, to God make it an offering of praise, and end with a proverb to finish off at night, something to keep us wise for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the uh, lessons of uh, patience that we can learn from reading about Joseph there in the prison. We thank you for uh, all of the other instruction that you've given us in these words, the little symbols which point to your wisdom and your transcendency over time, how you have it all picturing something even greater coming in the gift of your son, our Lord Jesus. And we do thank you for that gift. I would pray that if anybody here today has not yet in their heart called on Jesus and asked him to forgive them of their sins, that they would do so. And that they would be bold then after that in telling other people about him as well just sharing this wonderful life-saving message of the glory of God found in Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. I pray for each person here that you'd give them a safe week ahead. Those that will be traveling, please be with them and help them to uh, get where they're going and get back home safely and uh, just not have too much trial in the cold weather up north. And uh, the people that are going to work, keep them safe in their jobs, keep them content in their households, their fellowship with others. Lord, thank you for these things. 
we know that we don't deserve any of them, but we ask for them anyway because you're a great God and we know that you will give what we have asked if it's in accordance with your will. We thank you. We praise you. We love you. We give you the glory and honor you're due in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.